listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, good morning. It is good to see you. I hope you're doing well. If you have a Bible, let's turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew 17. We're going to continue our series. I think it's week 38 through the Gospel of Matthew. If you're a guest with us, we are on week 38 of a sermon series through the Gospel according to Matthew. And we're gonna pick it up in chapter 17. In just a moment, I'm gonna read starting in verse 14. Um, but as you're turning there, I do have a rather ex- exciting personal announcement. Um, uh, uh, last Wednesday, uh, my wife and I w- welcomed our fourth child. I forgot what I was gonna say there. <laughs> Sleep deprived. Sleep deprived. Um, yeah, so 11 days ago, not this past Wednesday, but the Wednesday before, it's so our fourth child. Her name is Vivian. She was eight pounds, 15 ounces. She was 23 inches long. So if you know anything about average length of babies, that's very long. I know that comes as a great surprise to you. Um, The reason why I I even mention that is is it's been a couple of years since we've had a baby in our house. And uh, there's a lot you forget. There's a lot you forget about a baby, Um, about a whole newborn, right? One of the things that is coming to my attention very uh, clearly is, is just how much time you spend holding babies. You just hold them. That's been my role as dad, right? Either take care of the other three kids so mom can do what she needs to do or, have, or whatever, have a break, or just hold the baby. It's been my role. I hold the baby all the time. Early in the morning, middle of the day, late at night, right? Just holding the baby over and over and over again. By the way, you guys all look real, real well-rested, and I'm happy for you about that. <laughs> um, but in this time with her, as I've, been, as I've held my daughter, it's just done something in me. It it's creates the, something in me. It's, it's created a, a deep sense of gratitude in my heart for God. Um, not so much at three in the morning. Okay, if I could be honest, the, the Lord still has a lot of work to do in me, especially when I'm not asleep at three in the morning. But holding this baby has created a deep sense of gratitude in my heart for God for a number of reasons. But one of the primary ones, and it's been a couple years since I've mentioned this here, the first four years of my marriage uh, with Mary Elizabeth, we struggled with infertility. So we saw doctors and we did the treatments and for whatever reason, none of it worked, right? And we felt helpless, we did. Um, there was, it felt like there was nothing we could do except for turn to God and really just, why? Why is us? Why us? Why is this happening to us? Why are we the ones who can't get pregnant? And when you're in that, all your friends happen to get pregnant right around that, just the way it works. And it seems like the most fertile people on the planet are the most ill-equipped to be parents. <laughs> um, and I'm not even joking. I'm not honest. Uh, and then here we are going, man, we're following Jesus. We're doing the best we can. We're not perfect, but we love you and we're doing the best. And why? Right? Um, and maybe you've been there. And I don't mean like you struggle with infertility. Maybe you have. I mean, have you ever been to the point in your life where all you can do is ask God why? Why me? Why now? Why us? So maybe you have been serious about following Jesus for five, 10, 15 years and you've been praying for a spouse and you're still single. God, why? Why me? Or you did get married and you had all these hopes and these dreams about what it would be like. And you're a couple years in and there's nothing like that. And you want out. It feels impossible. God, why? Or out of nowhere, you go to the doctor, everything's great, and you find out you're sick. And I don't mean sick like me right now. I mean sick, sick. God, why? Or, or even worse, you find out that one of your kids is sick. And you can't help but turn to God and question him, why is this happening to me? 
So at some point in our lives, I think we've all been to the place where we feel like we're doing everything we're supposed to do uh, and yet life isn't working. And the reason why I mention that is because the passage that we're gonna see today, this is the question that Jesus's disciples ask him. Why is it not working? And Jesus is gonna answer them, only he's not gonna answer them the way that we might expect. So I want us to look, Matthew 17, verse 14. Jesus says, or, or sorry, the Bible says, and when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he has seizures and he suffers terribly for often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So let's remember the context of this story. Last week we started chapter 17, which is uh, what's called the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Jesus goes up on this mountain to pray. He takes with him Peter, James, and John. And while they're there, Jesus is said to have transfigured. A word means transformed, to change. Um, and what's going on here is that Jesus has given these three disciples a glimpse behind the curtain. He's pulling back the curtain a bit on his humanity and, and giving them a glimpse of his true nature and his glory. And so when they, uh, what we just read in, in the end of chapter 17 is, is what happens when they come down the mountain. They come down the mountain of transfiguration. Peter, James, and John probably still had their mouths open trying to figure out what just happened. And it says they came to a crowd. Verse 14 says they came to a crowd. And when they get there, there's this man, a father who runs up to Jesus and he cries out to him. Verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. Often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, but they could not heal him. Can you feel the desperation from this father? He says, Lord, my son is suffering. Will you have mercy on him? He's at the end of his rope. He's, he's gone everywhere he knows to do and he's begging Jesus to do something. And Mark's gospel gives us a little more detail into this conversation. It won't be on the screen, but Mark 9, 21 uh, says that Jesus asked the father before he heals him, he says, how long has this been happening to him? And the father says, from childhood. And that's an important detail because it's, it didn't say from birth. There's a different Greek word that means from birth. So he's, what that means for us is that at some point, this little boy was, was happy and healthy. And we don't know when this happened to him from that, but we know that at some point there was this transformation. There was this change that happened. One day he's happy and healthy. All of a sudden he starts having these seizures. Not just any seizures, seizures that, that force him into water and into fire, right? So just for a minute, put yourself in this father's shoes. You have spent the last at least few years of your life watching your son suffer with nothing you can do about it. And you're, you're afraid to even let him out of your sight. Because if you do, what's gonna happen? You're always on eggshells just trying to, when am I gonna have to rescue him this time, right? And what we learn later in this passage is that he wasn't just suffering from like epileptic seizures, he was tormented by a demon. And this father is, is just grieved. And he hears about a man named Jesus. A man who not only teaches like one who has authority, but a man who has power to give sight to the blind, to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And he had brought his son to Jesus, hoping that maybe, just maybe he could do something to help. And so as soon as he sees Jesus, he runs up to him. 
And he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. And Jesus does. And now that's not the point of my sermon today, but we can't miss that. Lord, have mercy on my son. Verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Instantly. One of the themes in the gospel of Matthew is that over and over, as people encounter the power and the authority of Jesus, the question they ask is, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Remember Matthew chapter eight, Jesus is with his disciples on a boat and there's a storm and he wakes up and he calms the wind and the waves. And what do they say? Who is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. And even the Pharisees and the scribes, when they encounter Jesus and his power, they feel threatened by it. They wanna get rid of him because they don't wanna lose their place of power and importance. Um, And they don't respond with who is this? They respond with who does this guy think he is? Right, they wanna get rid of him. And yet, over and over in the Gospel of Matthew, every time the demons encounter Jesus, they know exactly who he is, exactly who he is. And they don't respond with, who is this? They obey immediately. Again, verse 18, Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Church, Jesus is the one with all authority. He's the one with all authority over every square inch of creation, including me and you. He's the one who, Hebrews 1 verse three that Gardner read earlier, upholds the universe by the word of his power. He holds it all together. But here in chapter 17, Matthew is not trying to make the point that Jesus has power over disease and demons. He's already made that point, right? In chapter four and chapter six and eight and nine and 12 and 14 and 15, he's already made the point that Jesus has power over disease and and demons. Did you notice in this passage, Matthew gives one verse to the miracle? I mean, this, this one verse absolutely changed this father's life. They let us, we assume, we don't know what happened to him. They went off and he was healed. He gives one verse to the miracle. The rest of the passage is about his interaction with his disciples, which means for us, the passage isn't about the miracle. It's about discipleship. It's about what it looks like for us to live our lives as followers of Jesus, the one with all authority. Particularly, what does it look like for us to live our lives as followers of Jesus when life's not going the way we want it to? When we feel stuck, when we wanna ask the question, why? Let's look at the verse 19. It says, then the disciples came to Jesus privately. So the crowd's gone, the father, the son are gone, their lives changed forever because of one encounter with Jesus. Disciples come to Jesus privately. We think we're in Peter's home now based on some context from other gospels. And it said, why could we not cast it out? God, why? Right, this is our question. This is the disciples come to Jesus. They say, why isn't this working? And here's what's going on. Back in chapter 10, when Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, he doesn't just say, hey, you wanna come hang out and see some cool things? That's not what happens. In chapter 10, verse one, it says, he gave them, Jesus gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. And so based on their response here in chapter 17, it seems like that's what they did, that they had been healing disease and had been casting out demons because of this authority that's been stewarded to them by Jesus. But what happens is they can't cast this one out. Why? Look at the way Jesus responds. Verse 20, he said to them, because of your little faith, For truly I say to you, if you would have faith like a grain of mustard seed, then you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Real quick, we need to know what this, uh, if you you could tell this mountain to move from here to there. This is not Jesus actually saying that if they just had faith, the disciples could rearrange landscapes. 
This is a Hebrew idiom. It's like for us, if we were to say, it's raining cats and dogs, that's an idiom, right? We're not saying there are animals falling from the sky. We're saying it's raining very hard. And so this Hebrew idiom, tell this mountain to move from here to there, does not mean, hey, you could move a mountain if you want to. What they're saying is if you had faith, then you could do things that seem impossible. That's what's happening here. Um, So basically, they come to Jesus and they say, we did everything the way that you said we should, and it's worked before. It's worked before. It's worked for us in the past. So why didn't it work this time? And Jesus says, because of your little faith. And if you read this passage through just kind of on your own, it's pretty confusing. Because first he says, you can't cast out the demon because your faith is too little. But then he says, but you could do impossible things if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, which is small. That's confusing, right? It seems contradictory. So which one is it? On top of that, in verse 17, he calls them and the disciples and the whole crowd a faithless generation. So which one is it? Are they faithless or is their faith too little? And if, there's, if it's their faith is too little, then what does that mean for me and you? Because I have doubts. Can I be honest? As one of your pastors, there are times where I doubt I'm not all the time trusting Jesus completely and fully. And my guess is you do too, right? So um, what does that mean for us? Is Jesus saying that if we don't have our faith above a certain level, then we can't be used by him or he's not gonna love us anymore? It's confusing, but here's what's going on. Jesus is not saying that if we wanna follow him, then we need to make sure we keep our faith above a certain level. We, We all have a faith meter. And if you get below seven, then he is gonna cast you out. No, that's not what he's saying. And I can say that confidently because he said, doing impossible things requires faith, how? Like a grain of mustard seed. So what's going on here? This word little, when he says, because of your little faith, this word little, most of the time in the Bible, it's translated few. And those are different. Not on the surface, but they're different. This word few, uh, that's translated little here in Matthew 17, it, it actually means lacking or inadequate. So in the context, what Jesus is saying about faith is the problem isn't that you don't have enough of it. The problem is that where you have put your faith is inadequate. It's too little. His point is, you don't need a bigger faith. You need faith in something bigger. This is what Jesus is saying to him because a big faith in anything other than God will ultimately fail us every time. But a small faith in a big God will be more than enough. And so the question that I think God wants us to answer this morning is we consider our own discipleship our own following of of Jesus, the one with all authority, our own following after him, particularly when it's difficult, is this, is where's your faith? Simple question. But if we would be courageous enough to answer it honestly this morning, where's your faith? What are the things that you're trusting in? I remember when, when we were walking through infertility, people would always say to us, you just gotta have faith. You just gotta have faith, it'll work out in the end. Um, And that's not necessarily wrong. But for it to not be wrong, a huge distinction has to be made. And the distinction, because without this distinction, you just gotta have faith that it's gonna work out in the end. That's what leads us to the life of doing everything that we think we're supposed to do. But then when life doesn't work out the way we want it to, we, we grow bitter and frustrated and confused and angry with God. So there's a distinction that has to be made because here's the thing, most of the folks who told us you just need to have faith, they, weren't, they didn't mean you just need a little faith in a big God who sees you and loves you and knows what's best for you. What they meant was if you just have faith and just be patient, life will work out the way you want it to in the end. And eventually you'll get pregnant. That's what they meant. You just gotta have faith. And church, I know that feels good in the moment, but the problem with it is it's just not true. Life doesn't just work out the way you want it to. Not all the time. If, if, it, if that were the case, if that was the, the crux of Christianity, just have faith and life will work out the way you want it to, wouldn't we all have a bunch of problems with that? 
even in here this morning, faith is not a false sense of hope that things are gonna work out. The good news of the gospel is not that if you give your life to Jesus, everything goes the way you want it to. The good news of the gospel is that you, get, you surrender your life to Jesus, then regardless of what comes, Jesus will be there with you and he will be enough. The disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? Basically, they're saying, why didn't it work out the way we thought it would? And he says, because of your little faith. He's not saying you need a bigger faith. He's saying you need faith in something bigger, someone bigger. So where is your faith? Let's look at verse 21. If you have your Bible open, you look at verse 21 and you're, you're searching and you're like, wait, I see 20. I see 22. What's happening here, okay? Um, there is no verse 21, at least in, in most modern translations. So what's going on that, with that? Um, you probably have a footnote in your Bible that says something like this. Some manuscripts insert verse 21. So after it says nothing will be impossible for you, some manuscripts insert, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. So what's going on here? This is what's called a textual variant, um, a, a biblical textual variant. And, and Bill did a, a, sermon, a whole deep dive sermon on this back in, in the summer. And if you want the link to that, you can go on our website or I can email it to you if you can't find it. Um, and he did a better job than I can do on it anyways. But what's happening is when the Bible was written in the original language, it didn't have chapters and verse numbers, just page after page after page of text. And so scribes would tr scribe it page after page after page of text with no chapters and no verse numbers. And when the chapters and verse numbers were added, um, the, there was verse 21. So there was a, a manuscript that seemed like it was accurate and that was what was scribed for verse 21. Um, but since then, we have found better and more complete manuscripts that don't include verse 21. And so that's why most modern translations put it in a footnote because they believe that it wasn't original to the gospel of Matthew. But the question we need to answer is, why is it there then? If we don't believe it was original, then, then why is it there? Did they just make it up? Again, you should go listen to Bill's sermon. But the reason is because that's called textual harmonization. And, and, and what that is, is where a scribe would either accidentally or intentionally change something because as they were scribing out that verse, they think of another verse that's similar. That's what's happening here, harmonization. Because Mark 9 should be on the screen. Verse 28 says, this is Mark telling the same story. When he had entered the house, Jesus, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? So that's the same conversation that we were reading in Matthew 17. And then Mark 9, 29 says, and he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Textual harmonization. So as the scribe's writing down Matthew, he remembers the verse from Mark 9, 29, and he writes what he did. So even though this isn't in the gospel of Matthew, it's just like any other detail that Mark gives us that Matthew does not. It, we can be confident that Jesus said it right here. This kind doesn't come out by anything but prayer. And remember, Jesus said that they couldn't cast the demon out because of their little faith. So the question we have to answer is, what does prayer have to do with faith? What's the connection between prayer and faith? And again, we saw earlier in Matthew 10 that God had already given his disciples the authority to cast out demons. He gave them authority to cast out demons. It doesn't say he gave them the power to do it. He gave them the authority to do it because it's his power. So they're stewarding the authority of Jesus, but it is still ultimately his power. It can only be done by his power and his authority. And so while Jesus, Peter, James, and John are up on the Mount Transfiguration, here's the rest of the disciples and they're just going through the motions. They're just doing what they had done before and it's worked before, but they're not relying on his power and it did not work this time. And so here's the point for us I want you to see. 
is that we do this too. We do this too. And if we're honest, without God, we can manage okay. Up to a point. If we're honest, we do this too. And without God, we can manage along in our life okay up to a point because as long as life goes the way we want it to, it's all good. We don't really need him, do we? But inevitably, we hit the place in our lives where it's, it's either we come up in, in some evil like this or just life's not working and we turn to God and we say, why? Right? And the reason why it's not working is because we're trying to do it without him. We're trying to do it without him. And church, to truly follow Jesus, we need more than his commands. You need Jesus himself. This is a connection between faith and prayer. To truly follow Jesus is more than just do what he says because the only way to actually do what he says is to do it with him. I've said this a bunch. Like you don't just live your life for God. You live it with God. This is the connection between faith and prayer. Again, the good news of the gospel is that if you surrender your life to Jesus, regardless of what comes, he will be there and he will be enough. But that's only true if we go to him, particularly in prayer. I said this a few weeks ago, but prayer is not an option for the followers of Jesus. Prayer is oxygen for followers of Jesus. It's the only way that we can catch our breath in a broken and a sinful world. And there is no such thing as a self-sufficient Christian. And yet, I think so many of us walk around like we can handle all the things in our world except the really big, big things. We got all this, but God, will you just help me with these few things? That's how we live our lives. Why is that? Why? Are we so arrogant and prideful that we think we can handle it without him? And here's the thing, even if we could, even if you could, why would you want to? Hebrews says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Why would you try to do it without him? So, it is, so is it that we, we think we don't need him or is it that we think that if we go to him that he doesn't want us to come? Listen to what Jesus says about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 7, verse 7, he says this, ask and it will be given to you. This is Jesus talking about prayer. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. And what's interesting about the original language is it's not a linear process. It's not ask and seek and knock and then it'll, it'll open for you. Like prayer is some sort of combination lock. You go one way, this way, back twice, and back this way, and then it opens for you. No, it's not linear, it's, it's repetitive, it's continual. It's ask and ask and keep on asking, and seek and seek and keep on seeking, and knock and knock and keep on knocking, and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then he gives us this illustration to understand what prayer is like. He says, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, would give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, would give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And now, I can barely read that passage right now because like I said, I've been holding this baby. And it does something in your heart that just creates this deep sense of gratitude uh, for God because I go, if she asks me for something, I'm gonna give it to her. If she asks for bread, which is symbolic for life, I'm not gonna give her death which is a serpent. And Jesus says, if you then who are evil, and he's not saying you're evil, he's saying compared to the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the love of God, it looks like you are. 
if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? You know, prayer is a privilege. It's not a have to, it's not a, yeah, it's not a have to, it's a get to. Prayer is about access to the almighty God of the universe. And you've been invited in. The one who upholds the universe with its word of his power, he loves you, he knows you, he sees you, and he invites you to come to him. And it's not insignificant that he uses this illustration of a father and a child to help us understand this relationship. It's about access. So uh, as one of your pastors uh, on staff at this church, you have access to me. If you send me an email, I should respond. And if I don't, I'm sorry, I will get to it, all right? Phone call, I should, I'm gonna reply to that phone call because you have access. If you wanna get together, you wanna come have a meeting, coffee, lunch, we can do that because you have access to me. But my children have a different level of access to me, do they not? This past week at community group, we ventured out, all four of us, it was family night, all four, six, can't even add today, six of us, all four kids and me and Mary Elizabeth. And we went to community group, um, family night, so we have a meal, fellowship's great, and then a little conversation about the transfiguration and how it weighs on our soul as followers of Jesus. And then we were gonna pray. And I asked someone else to pray because I've been talking for a long time, um, like I do here. And I asked someone to pray and my, my daughter comes and climbs up my lap, two and a half years old, not the, not the 11 day old, she can't do that yet. Um, my Josie, my two and a half year old comes up, sits in my lap and then this guy in our group's about to pray. And as soon as he starts to pray, she turns to me, she whispers in my ear, she says, me poop on you. <laughs> she had just pooped while she was sitting in my lap. Right Now, you have access to me. But if you tried that, we would have problems, okay? You would be in church discipline, I would resign, okay? Probably both, but one or the other for sure. Because children have different level of access and that's what the Bible's saying. You can come to me with everything and it doesn't matter how you say it. God cares what you have to say. He's invited us in, he's given us access because the sovereign God of the universe wants us to come to him and to call him father. Let's look at verse 24. We're gonna come back to 22 and 23 briefly. Verse 24 says, when they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? Sound like a loaded question. And he said, yeah. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax from their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open his mouth, you're gonna find a shekel and take that and give it to them for me and yourself. So what's your first thought when you read that? That's incredible, right? That is incredible that Jesus has, is sovereign, has power over everything, even down to what the contents of the mouths of the fish in the Sea of Galilee. That's incredible. Um, and that's true. But Matthew's already made that point. Again, this passage isn't about the miracle, it's about discipleship. It's about what it looks like to follow Jesus with your life. Verse 24 says they came to Capernaum, right? This is a small town on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. This is pretty much Jesus's headquarters for his ministry. He did most of his headquarters or most of his ministry in Capernaum. And so they come back to this town and they're not there long before these tax collectors show up. 
And what we need to know about these tax collectors, this was not like Zacchaeus, this was not Matthew, okay? They didn't work for the, they weren't collecting taxes for Rome. This was a, a tax that was ordained by God. In Exodus 30, God says that every male over the age of 20 who's of age would give a two drachma tax, or it's this tax that basically everyone would pay that would go to the upkeep of the temple. That's what this was for. And so when they get back to Capernaum, the tax collectors approach Peter and they say, hey, does your teacher not pay the tax? And in retrospect, Peter probably should ask Jesus before he spoke for him. But Peter goes, yes, he does. And to give him credit, Peter is just assuming that of course Jesus is gonna pay this tax because everyone does. The temple is, was an unbelievable significant thing for the Jewish people. This is a, a primary theme in the entire, entirety of the Bible, right? So look what happens here. Verse 25, um, he said, did your teacher not pay the tax? Verse 25, he said, yes. And when he came to him in the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax, from their sons or from others? And he said, from others. And Jesus said, well, then the sons are free. So basically what's happening here is that Jesus says, do you think kings would tax their own children or would they tax others? Wow, it's raining hard. Um, do you think kings would tax their own children or do they tax others? And Peter goes, others. Because if, to tax your own kids would be like to tax yourself. It's like when my kids give me a gift, right? They didn't buy that for me, I bought that for me. You know what I mean? That's what he's saying. And, and Peter says, others. And then Jesus says, exactly, then the sons are free. And the point he's making here is he's applying this to the temple, the sons are free, and he's applying it to himself. He's saying that, I am exempt from this temple tax because the temple exists to point to me. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying what he already said back in Matthew 12, verse six. He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And again, the temple is a major theme in the Bible from beginning to end. And what makes it significant is it's the place where God's presence dwelt with his people. Beginning to end. The Bible starts with a temple and it ends with God dwelling with his people in a new city, a temple. The, new, the first temple in a sense was the Garden of Eden. This is the place where God's presence dwelt with his people. And what happens when they sin is they are removed from the garden and removed from God's presence, but God's plan wasn't to keep them out forever, was it? Because he goes to a man named Abraham and Israel and he dwells among them and he says, I want to tabernacle with you and I will bless the, the entire world through you. And he tabernacles with them out of Exodus in the wilderness into the promised land. And what happens in the promised land? They build a temple. The temple was the sign and the place where God's presence and his blessing were with his people. And we have to understand that if we're gonna understand what Jesus is saying to Peter when he says the sons are free. We need to understand this idea of the temple when it comes to Jesus saying the sons are free because what Jesus is saying is that he is the king. He is the one with all authority, but he's also the one who left heaven to become like us yet without sin. And he's the one who, verse 22 and 23 says, will be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him, but he will be raised on the third day. His point is that God no longer dwells in a physical temple, but now he has come to dwell among his people in a new way through his son, Jesus. This means for us that Jesus is the true temple. Jesus is the true temple and he's the way, the way that we commune with God now is through the son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is why this passage is more about discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus than it is about the miracle because Jesus is the true temple. Here's what that means for us. If Jesus is the true temple, then that means that we shouldn't worship in any other temple. And you go, well, that's, that's easy. 
because I only come to CBC, right? Um, but just because we don't call something a temple doesn't mean we don't have them. Because ultimately, what is a temple? A temple is something that, that houses a deity, right? A temple is something that possesses the thing we worship. So a temple is anything or any place that we offer our worship in hopes that in return, it will give us the love, joy, and forgiveness that we're looking for. So in my opinion, from my vantage point, as I look at the culture of the world we live in, there are two primary false temples that we tend to worship in. It's the false temple of money and the false temple of relationships. False temple of money and relationships. When I say money, that includes your career or the work that you do to earn money. It also includes the, the things or the life that you can buy with the money that you earn, right? So with the way that works out is work becomes our temple when work is not about work or career, it's about a source of identity and significance. When you look to what you do, in order to tell you who you are and to feel like you matter, then you can be sure that you're no longer just working, you're worshiping. And we can worship at this temple through the work we do to earn money or with the life that we can buy with the money that we get. So when your source of significance and worth is what house you live in or what car you drive or what kind of clothes you wear, what kind of vacations you take, we worship at the temple of money. So there's that temple, there's also the temple of relationships. This could be friendships or a marriage or your parents or it could be your kids, any relationships. Now, relationships are a good gift from God, but we elevate a good thing into temple worship when we look to those relationships to make us feel like we matter. That I get my source of significance and value and worth from being a pastor and, and you thinking that I'm good at doing what I do or from being a husband and my wife thinking that I'm good at being a husband or my kid, whatever. When we elevate our relationships that way, whether it's a friendship or marriage, when you need the other person to make you feel significant, you put a weight on them that they cannot bear. And you will crush them with your expectations and you will be constantly frustrated and disappointed with their inability to do what they were not created to do for you. This is temple worship. And it's not just these two, but those are two of the bigger ones that I've observed. We can't help but worship or turn things in our world into a temple, a place that we offer ourselves to. And we sacrifice toward these temples. We give our money to them in exchange for some kind of love or joy or, or fear, forgiveness or feeling that we matter, right? We give them our time because ultimately we believe they will provide for us the life we want. But in Matthew 17, Jesus says, since he is the true temple, he says this, this is what you can't miss. He says, then the sons are free then the sons are free. Let me tell you why that's good news. Look what happens. Jesus says, what do you think, Simon? And again, he doesn't call him Peter there, which is significant. He just gave him this nickname in chapter 16, but he's saying, you're not acting in accordance with the nickname I gave you, so you're Simon now. And Peter's thinking, uh-oh. He says, what do you think, Simon? Do kings tax their children or others? And again, Peter's thinking, uh-oh, because he knows he just told these tax collectors that they were gonna pay him. And now he's kind of getting the sense that Jesus is saying, I don't have to pay that. And so he's like, well, what do I do, right? Um, he's thinking, maybe I can pay for both of us, I don't know. Um, and now Jesus says he doesn't have to. Look at what happens in verse 27. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel, and take that and give it to them for me and for you. So Jesus says that he's free from paying the tax, but he pays it anyway. And he says the reason why is because he doesn't want to offend them. And this isn't because Jesus is afraid of offending people. 
right? This doesn't mean that we should now walk around eggshells, making sure that we never hurt anyone's feelings. No, he's, his favorite phrase for the Pharisees are, is you brood of vipers, you bunch of snakes, right? He's not afraid of offending anyone. What's happening here is these guys are probably not religious leaders. They're just doing a job. It's just their job to go get the tax and take it back to the temple, okay? Um, and so at the end of the day, it would not have done any good for Jesus to lecture them on how he's the true temple and how he didn't have to pay it. So you go back and tell them that. No, it wouldn't have done any good because it would have reflected poorly on them, right? And so even though Jesus was free from the tax, he pays it anyway in this unbelievably miraculous way. And what this passage shows us is something about the character and the nature of Jesus, that there is a willingness in him to serve others even when it costs him. Jesus serves others even when it costs him. And did you notice Jesus doesn't just pay for himself, he pays for Peter as well. It's what he means when he says the sons are free. He's not just saying, I'm exempt from this tax. He's talking about you and me. He's saying this, that he is the one who pays the debt that we owe. He's the one who who makes sacrifice for our sin. And so now you and I are free from living a life of offering our sacrifices to all these other temples that will ultimately never satisfy the deep longings of our heart. You are free, free to offer yourself fully to him and to receive in Christ the only identity that will ever fully satisfy you. And it isn't bought with your blood or your money or your sweat or your tears. It is purchased for you and secured for you by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what he means when he says that the sons are free. Church, Jesus says, you don't need a bigger faith. You just need faith in something bigger. And so is your faith in him or someone else? Is it in him or in the things that he can do for you? One of the ways we can know from this passage is, do you pray? If your faith's in him, you pray. If, if God is who he says he is and he loves you like the Bible says he does, then the natural response is to go to him in prayer. And if you don't pray, then why? Do you know that not only has, like we said before, God given you access and invited you to come to him, but in John 6, Jesus says this, I will never cast you out. That's good news for us this morning, church. Let me pray for us and then we'll respond in worship. Father, we thank you that like we started this time, there are, any number of reasons why you should cast us out. Any number of reasons why we fail day in and day out, we do not measure up. And yet, Jesus has measured up on our behalf. So we're thankful for your word and how you speak to us through it, even in in ways that maybe we don't fully understand. God, I pray that you would help us. And as we respond in worship, would you allow us to be reminded and encouraged of your love for us in Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. If you would, let's stand and respond together.